All right. All right. How's everybody today? Everybody good? Yeah, it's awesome, right? So if you got your Bibles on your phone, your iPad, wherever you got, uh, Acts 21 is where we're at in the story. So let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever had somebody tell gossip about you to other people? Anybody? I'm not going to ask how many of you have told gossip about other people because that could be embarrassing. How many of you like it when people tell gossip about you to other people and then you have to decide what to do about it when you hear that they've done it? How many of you enjoy that process? Yeah, no, that's a bad process. It's funny because in our text today, listen, this is a big moment in our text. If you've been with us as we've walked through the book of Acts, this is a big moment, right? Because from this moment on in the book of Acts until the end of the book of Acts, which is about six and a half chapters... It covers about four and a half years of Paul's life. And the last four and a half years, this is the last moment in the story that the Apostle Paul is a free man. From this moment on, in the story, Paul spends the rest of his life either imprisoned in a home under house arrest or chained to a Roman guard in a Roman dungeon. He's not free after this. This is a big moment. And it's also the last mention you're going to hear of the temple. Because this was written around 58 AD. Twelve years later, God keeps his promise as it was prophesied and the temple is completely destroyed. It's a huge moment. And here's the crazy part. The story makes me crazy, right? So I'm just going to summarize the story for you. So here's the story. Paul's been told, don't go to Jerusalem. It's going to be bad for you when you go. If you were here last week and you heard Joe talk about Agabus, you heard about the prophet that showed up took the belt, wore it, and said, the guy who's got this belt, right? The guy who's got this belt, he's going to be in some serious trouble when he goes to Jerusalem. In spite of that, Paul was undaunted because he was going to go to Jerusalem. And second of all, he was going to take the offering that the Gentile churches had collected to give to the church in Jerusalem. He wasn't going to be denied. So he gets to Jerusalem, and listen, Jerusalem's his hometown. When he was about 13 years of age, he moved to Jerusalem as a good Jewish boy to study under Gamaliel. And so he spent his formative years there. It was going home. He had a huge offering from churches that were Gentiles to help the Jewish Christians. It was a big moment. And so he comes home and he meets with the church in Jerusalem. James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, is there and all the elders. And he tells them, you're never going to believe the amazing things that God's done. The amazing things that God's done through my ministry. And he tells them. And they praise God for all of that. And then the narrative shifts really quickly. And here's what the elders at the church of Jerusalem tell the Apostle Paul. Listen, there's a lot of people here in Jerusalem that are Jews that have believed in Jesus. But here's the problem, Paul. They're hearing things about you. And here's what they're hearing. They're hearing that you are telling everybody not to get circumcised and not to follow any of the customs of the Jewish people. And it's got them aggravated. They got them mad. And they're going to hear that you're here and they're going to want to meet about it. So here's what the elders tell Paul, the apostle. Here's what we want you to do. There's four good Jewish boys down at the temple. They've taken a Nazarite vow. We would like for you to go down to the temple and pay for their purification rites. 
which included four male lambs, four ewe lambs, four drink offerings, right? Four grain offerings. It was an expensive ask. And he said to pay for their head to be shaved. You go down there and do that with them. And then all the Christians that are Jews here in Jerusalem will go, that rumor wasn't true at all. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to deal with gossip that way. Right? This was the elders of the church of Jerusalem that were asking Paul, you know what? You've had a great missionary journey. God's done amazing things, but we need you to deal with this because we don't want these people upset at you. I don't know about you, but I spend my life with people upset at me, right? It's not really something. And so this story for me personally drives me crazy because I don't understand why Paul didn't tell the elders at the church of Jerusalem. Are you kidding me? You want me to waste my time dealing with this nonsense just after I told you all the amazing things that God has done? And that's not what he did. The Bible says that Paul did exactly what he was asked. He went down to the temple. He paid for these boys and their purification rites. And he even participated with them at the temple. And the only question I have in my brain is why? Why would he do that? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. What the text tells us in regard to why would Paul do such a thing? And I think some of these things are important for you and I. So we're going to skip Acts 21, the reading of it, because I just wanted you to hear the story. And we're going to get to those three things. Here's the first thing that Paul did in regard to answering my question as to why would he do it? Here's why. He submitted to the power of his partner in ministry. How many of you ever heard this saying? If you want anything done right, you got to do it yourself. How many of you said it? How many of you believe it? Yeah, yeah. Now we're getting somewhere, right? If you want something right, done right, you got to do it yourself. We know, listen, from, from passages in Acts 20, we know from other passages in Acts 9 that Paul's been in partnership with God from the very beginning of his conversion, right? God told Ananias, our Priscilla and Aquila, he said, listen, This man and I are in partner. I'm going to show him what he's going to have to suffer as he preaches to the Gentiles. It's been a partnership for Paul forever, right? He knows. And when he tells the elders in Jerusalem in Acts 21, 19, he says to them, all the great things, right? Verse verse 19, bring that verse 19 up, Lori. What he says to them in verse 19 tells you, right, what he says. Acts 21, 19. Two more clicks on that. On that screen. You got it. Everybody pray that the screens. There you go. Right. Paul greeted them. Reported in detail. What God had done among the Gentiles. Everybody in the land. Everybody online. Everybody in here. Read that last part with me. Through ministry. Listen. Here's what what I want you to understand. If you're a believer in Jesus. Whether you're here in Ormond. Online. In the land. You are in a partnership with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? Right? That's the agreement that God's, that God's made. The Bible says that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us as a believer. Amen? That's our partnership. Right? And I think sometimes we forget how amazing our partner is. Right? I don't think we understand. I want to read a passage to you in, in Philippians chapter 1. Paul's addressing a church, right? Paul's addressing a church that's got a few problems, not many. But in Philippians chapter 1, he tells people, right, 
what happens. And I want you to listen to this because I think sometimes we forget how amazing our partner is in ministry. Paul said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What's happened to Paul was he got arrested. I don't know about you, but if I get arrested, I'm not so sure I'm going to be so positive. Right? Like, I've only been arrested once. Right? I really didn't feel this way. Paul says it's advanced the gospel. He says as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard, right? And to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. He goes on to say, but because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord, they've been encouraged. And now they're speaking the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. That was not my experience when I was arrested, right? But Paul had a different perspective. He had such a perspective about his ministry partner, he went on to say this. It's true that some people are preaching Jesus out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. So because of Paul's in prison, there were preachers taking advantage of it, and they were trashing him. See, we told you. We told you he wasn't what he thought He wasn't what he said he was. We told you he's not that impressive. They're preaching Jesus, but they're trashing Paul. And he says, the latter, the goodwill people, they're preaching Jesus out of love. Knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But listen to this. The former, the people that are preaching it out of envy and rivalry, listen to the motive of the preacher. The former preach, right? The preacher preaches Christ out of what? Not sincerely. A preacher who preaches Jesus out of selfish ambition. Listen to what Paul says about his ministry partner. He says, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Right? Listen to what Paul said. He said, but what does it matter? What does it matter? Because the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. He said, and because of this, I rejoice And yes, I will continue to rejoice. You see, it's amazing what God can do, isn't it? Man, when God's your partner, when God's working with you, listen, do you know what God can do? He can use a preacher who preaches Jesus out of false motives. And Paul says, I don't care because Jesus is being preached. Man, for some of us, that should be a game changer in how we see God work in other people. right? Not just people we see on TV, but how about people in church? Listen, I've been doing this a long time. Some of you have been coming to church for a long time. And you know how the conversations go with church people. Sometimes after church. Right? Let's just be honest. Right? We're in church. Ain't a point lying. Right? The reality is this. We go home from church and they're like, I, I, can, can you believe? Can you believe that person? I can't even believe that that person, that person is, is serving Jesus back in children's. Or did you see who was in the parking lot? I cannot believe that they're serving in the parking lot. Listen, I think we forget how amazing our church partner, our ministry partner is. God's able to use a preacher whose motives are impure and they're simply preaching for selfish reasons. And Paul says, I don't care because as long as Jesus is being preached, I'm going to rejoice. You know how much less negativity there would be in conversations with church people if we truly believe that? Man, God can do amazing things. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible says that God partnered with a donkey to help get his job done. Right? God partnered, God partnered with a blind man in John 9 to get his job done. 
right? God partnered with a woman with five failed relationships, whether they were adulterous or whether she was married and was working on her sixth. God partnered with her in a desert at a well to get his job done. And for some of you, right, for some of us, whether in the land, online, or whether right here in Ormond, we don't understand how amazing our ministry partner is. Listen, one of the reasons we constantly want you to serve is not honestly, listen, we tell you about the need, but the need isn't the reason we ask. The reason we ask is because you have no idea how amazing it is to partner with Jesus till you actually get into a place where you get to see how amazing your partner is. And man, that happens when you serve. It doesn't matter if you serve in the parking lot, whether you're cooking bacon at church for Jesus, right? Or whether you Dang, go into the student ministry to serve teenagers. If you get into a place where you get to be a part of serving with an amazing partner, you'll realize there's a lot less things to complain about. Listen, my verse for this year, and I'm already going to wear people out about it coming up. It's not even 2023, and this is my verse for 2023. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. I mean, we read that like it's our grandmother saying, you know what, honey, just don't worry, right? We say, oh, that's so sweet and we appreciate it. No, listen, when Paul says, do all things without grumbling or complaining, it is a biblical mandate. Can I get an amen? And do you know how to grumbling and complaining Christians do about other Christians that serve in ministry way too much? And here's the thing. You may not know this, but there have been people standing in the line at our cafe who were first-time visitors to our church and they heard some of you in the line talk negatively about other people in the church. And you'll go, well, that didn't happen. I will assure you it did because they came and told me what you said. Listen, we have no idea who's standing around us, who's who's watching us, who's sitting by us. Why? We need to understand. We've got an amazing, amazing, an amazing ministry partner. Right? Paul was so impressed with what God had done through his ministry that when the elders said, hey, I need you to do this, he went, no problem. No problem. Listen, if you believe in your ministry partner, if you believe that what God can do, what won't you say yes to? Because you'll get to see God do amazing things. I want to read this in 2 Corinthians 10 for others of you in the room online in the land that might be thinking, okay, that's great, right? Uh, or not so great, but it didn't really apply to me. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10 to reinforce how amazing our partner is. Paul writing, he says, that's why for Christ's sake, he said, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, and persecutions, and in difficulties. He goes on to say, for when I am weak, then I am what? I'm strong. He goes on to say this. He says, oh, that's Romans 8. Save that, Lori, my bad, right? Here's what you need to understand. God is such an amazing partner that what he wants more out of you than anything is your weakness. You see, some of you are sitting in here, some of you are watching online, some of you are sitting in the land, and you're thinking, okay, that's great, Court. I have an amazing ministry partner. But you have no idea how messed up I am, how untalented I am, how, how incompetent I am, how much of a failure I am. Let me tell you something. Our God is such an amazing ministry partner. He says, I work best when you're weak because then I get to be, I get to be, I get to be strong. You see, so many of us, we lead with our strength. We lead with our personality, right? We lead with our skill set. You know when God's really amazing is when the odds are stacked against you. And then your ministry partner shows up and does incredible things, right? 
Listen, God is such an amazing partner in ministry. Paul was willing to say over something so stupid. He was willing to say, you know what? I'll go take care of this. Because he submitted to the power of his ministry partner. And Romans 8, 28 wraps up why we do these things. Because the Bible says that we know, we know that in how many things? All things. God works. Get rid of that word, the. It's not in the Greek. And God works for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Listen, I don't care what you give God. And God doesn't care whether you give it to him out of a pure motive or a false motive or a selfish motive. God's going to work all things for good. Right? There's nothing God can't redeem and use for the purpose of ministry. And that's why Paul said, you know what? It's not a big deal to surrender to this because God's going to do amazing things with it. Amen, church? Here's the second reason why I believe Paul submitted to this silly request in my mind. And that's because he submitted to the authority of the elders. So if you go back in the book of Acts, all the way back at the beginning, man, we had... 3,000 people being added to the church and 5,000 people being added to the church and 6,000 people being added to the church. By the time you get to Acts chapter 6, we got a church in Jerusalem that's over 20,000 people. We think 3,000 is a big church. This isn't a mega church. 20,000 is a mega church, right? This is a small church compared to that. The church in Jerusalem was huge. And the apostles, those who had seen Jesus, they were in charge, right? By the time we get to Acts 21... The elders are in charge now. The elders have moved into overseeing the church of Jesus, right? And in Acts 20, as we read a couple weeks ago, God has placed at the feet of the elders charge of the flock of Jesus. And maybe you're new here. Maybe you're new into land or online and you don't know what an elder is. Right? An elder, according to scripture, is a spiritual overseer, right? A bishop, a shepherd of the flock of Jesus that he purchased with his own blood. Now, I'm not the Apostle Paul. I know that can be confusing to some of you, okay? And Joe's not the Apostle Paul, right? And it's not like Joe or I are sitting before the elders telling him all the amazing things God's done. This is the Apostle Paul. He wrote half of the New Testament or more so, right? He's done amazing things. He planted the churches in the Gentile world. There will be more people standing in eternity to beat Paul than probably anybody outside of Jesus because of all the work that he did. And the elders say to him, Hey, we appreciate everything that you did for the Gentiles, but we got a little problem. Can you please make sure that the Jewish Christians think that you still believe it's okay to be Jewish? What? That just blows my mind. Why did he, why did he say yes? I am convinced that part of the reason he said yes was because he submitted to the authority of the elders. So what does that mean for you? Well, listen, I want to read to you a couple passages about eldership, right, in the New Testament. So, Lori, if you go to 1 Peter 5, it's down there after Acts 20. But 1 Peter 5 talks about elders within the church and what their role is. Listen, we've got elders here, right? The word elder, pastor, bishop, shepherd, overseer, they're all interchangeable in Scripture, right? And so you have these people here here and Ormond and online and in the land. And here's what Peter said. He said, to the elders among you... He said, I appeal as a fellow elder. He says, a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. He said, be shepherds. This is the role of, of shepherds, right? Of pastors, of, of, of the elder, of the bishop. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, serving as an overseer, not because you must, 
right? But because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. You don't lord it over those who what? Have been entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. Listen, I know it's a foreign concept because we're Americans. But how many of you in here, how many of you online or in the land love to be told what to do? Anybody? Anybody like to be told what to do? No. How many of you struggle with it? Some of you are not participating. <laughs> Just pointing that out, right? I don't know many people that like to be told what to do. And we talk about church, right? And we talk about Jesus, right? And we talk about the freedom that we have in Christ. But within the confines of every church, according to Paul and Titus 1, that the way a church gets set in order is the appointing of elders in every city. There are those people at Tomoka, in the land, online. And listen, one of the things that I think at times you and I, listen, you and I, will be asked to do is to surrender to the authority of the spiritual leaders of our church. It's not a popular thing today, right? It's not a popular thing in 2022, right? It's not a popular thing in 2022 in a world where we want our voice heard, right? We want our freedom. We want to do what we want to do. It's not a popular thing in church, but the reality is this part of the responsibility of every believer within the confines of their local community of believers is to submit to the authority of the elders. Listen, you may be asked to do something that you don't want to do. You may be asked to do something that you look at and go, that's crazy. But need I remind you, the apostle Paul, the apostle Paul, was asked by the elders, would you please go to the temple and do this thing so that we can let Jewish Christians go ahead and not struggle with that? And Paul surrendered. You can't remove the fact that the ask came from the elders of his sending church. He submitted to that authority. There will be times in your life, in my life, where that will be asked of us. And my prayer for all of us, no matter where we're at, and what's going on when we're asked, we'll surrender to that authority because that's the way God has designed it. Does that make sense to you, church? So I'm not asking you if you like it. That's okay. Listen to what Hebrews 13, 17 says. It says this, obey your leaders. Obey your leaders and to, and to what? Submit to their authority. Now listen, we're not, don't, please don't walk out of here, right? And think that this is a blanket statement that these men, right, are going to ask you to do stupid things. Listen, I'm not, I'm asking you to, I'm asking you to use a little common sense here, right? I'm, I'm just talking about in this arena because you know the one thing that Paul had to have to acquiesce to this agreement from the elders, he had to have humility. Because at the end of the day, this is all about pride and humility, right? The apostle Paul could have stood up in that room and says, do you have any idea who you're asking to do this? Instead, you know what he did? He humbled himself to the spiritual authority and honored God's structure. Every person in here, online and in the land, may eventually be asked to do that. And it's my prayer that when that moment comes, you and I will be faithful. Amen, church? And then here's the last thing I think that Paul did that made him say why, or made him say yes to this request. He submitted to the authority of the mission. We say this all the time here, right? We say this all the time here. There's nothing more important than the mission that God's given the church. 
We say it. We exist to make it hard for people to go to hell from this generation. And we want everything, everything we do to be filtered through that. Because you know what? Nothing is more important than the mission. Now, listen, there are times we get it wrong. Right? There are times that people leave at times feeling less important than the mission. But I can assure you that just because the mission is preeminent does not make you unimportant. Right? There's not a person in here. There's not a person online. There's not a person in the land that in God's economy is not important enough for his son to die for. Amen? But when we become a part of this, we are a part of this because the mission is the most important thing That we have. It's the most important thing. So why did Paul surrender? I think ultimately Paul surrendered. Because of what is written in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writing to a church. Right? In a city that could have fit into the modern day. Lori, it's right. It's, it's in that point. First Corinthians 9. Right? He goes, he goes and writes to a church that's, that could easily live in, in America in 2022. Right? And he's dealing with, with Gentiles. He's dealing with Jews. He's dealing with all of these people. And here's what he writes. And I think this is the ultimate reason why Paul did this. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He goes on to say, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? These people were, were given the gospel by Paul, came to accept Jesus as their savior. And then he left town after staying there a while. And then false teachers were coming in and discrediting Paul. And he's writing to him and he's saying, listen, are you not the result of my work that God did? He goes on to say, though, I'm a free man, right? And we've talked about this. Listen, if you've been set free by Jesus from the law of sin and death, and you've been set free from the debt that you would have to pay for an eternity in hell, if you've been set free from that, can you just say amen? Man, he says, even though I receive that freedom, he says, and I belong to no man. Come on, man. Read this with me everywhere. I make myself a two. Listen, you want to fix your marriage? Take that verse out and tape it to your refrigerator. You want to make, you want to make your relationship with your spouse better? Become a slave to her. Surrender to her. Give up rights of self-governance to her. Wives, you want a better husband? Become a slave to them. You see, that language doesn't sound good in 2022. But that language has been a part of scripture forever. Because what did Jesus do? He emptied himself and became a bondservant to us. He surrendered to our need, to our desire. And now what he asks of us is to make ourselves a slave to everyone. Not because it's fun, but to what? Win as many as possible. Why? Because the mission matters more than anything. He said to a Jew... I become like a Jew. So if the Christians that are Jewish in Jerusalem need me to let them know it's okay to live out the ethos of being a Jew, the customs of the Jew, I'm going to go do it, right? I'm going to do that to those who are under the law. These were people zealous for the law because I want to be like one under the law. He goes on to say, though I am myself not under the law, so as to win those under the law. He goes on to say, To those not having the law, the Gentiles, I've become like one of them, not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under, right? I'm under Christ's law. Why? So I can win those not having the law. He goes on to say this, to the weak, I've become weak so that I can win the weak. 
He goes on to say, I've become all things to what? All men, so that by all possible means, I might what? Some. What was more important to Paul than anything in the world was seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he was asked what is a completely silly thing. He'd just come off the road from a missionary journey. And it had been ridiculous what he went through. And he gets back to Jerusalem and he gives them an amazing offering given by lots of poor churches to help meet the needs in Jerusalem. And the Jewish Christians were whining, whining about Paul and saying, he doesn't even want us to be Jewish anymore. And got so upset that they went to the elders of the church and demanded something happen. And when Paul got back, they said, hey, we're really great. We're really grateful about what God's done through you. But we really need you to do this because the gossip's out of control and we'd like for you to deal with it. That makes my head want to explode. And yet Paul did it. And I think he did it because he trusted in the power of his ministry partner. And I think he did it because he submitted to the authority of the elders. But I think more importantly, he did it. Because he understood the mission matters more than anything. We bring way too many agendas into work in a church, right? We bring way too many. Did you see that? The alarm went off and I am finishing up. Woo! Right? All right, all right, all right, all right. I, I know you're just clapping to encourage me. But he did it because at the end of the day, what matters to Paul Morning thing is winning people to Jesus. Listen, I don't know what you think is more important than winning people to Jesus. But in 2022, living in America as a church, not just locally, but globally, we need to be careful about what communicating to lost people in America. Right? This is a, this is a tricky time for our church because our culture is changing. We're calling right wrong. And we're calling wrong right. Our culture is becoming darker, right? We are walking in a in an America that has changed so dramatically that we are up in arms as believers. And I understand that completely. But we have to remember something, church. Ain't nobody saved by being an American citizen. You only become a citizen of heaven by knowing Jesus. And the most important thing that we'll ever communicate to anybody that doesn't know Jesus is it to love this country. But it's to love Jesus and to understand that this is not our home and we're just a passing through, right? Our home is up there way beyond the blue, right? That's what we have to be careful of. And listen, I get it. Man, I have a a ton of understanding of it. But at the end of the day, the message from every church, every church has not, has not Got to be a flag drenched in blue and white and red and stars. But a cross drenched in crimson that leads people to eternity. Amen, church? Listen, let's make sure that we make the mission the most important thing. I want to read this to you just to close. One of the commentators I I read this week wrote this and I thought it was so appropriate. He said, I suppose... Death to self is the real real issue. Somewhere along your pilgrimage as a Christian, Christian, you need to learn to die to yourself regularly. 
It saves you from being defensive and revengeful, retaliatory, hostile, and accumulating the list of things that have been done against you. When you're forgotten or neglected or purposely set aside and you sting and hurt with the insult or the oversight, but your heart's happy and you count it a privilege to suffer for Christ, I guess that's dying to self. And when your good is spoken of as evil, and when others misunderstand you, and when your desires are not interesting to others, when your advice is disregarded and your opinions are ridiculed, when you are abused and when you are mistreated or misunderstood, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, I guess that's dying to yourself. And when you lovingly, patiently bear any disruption, any irregularity, any annoyance, and when you can stand face to face with folly and waste and extravagance and insensitivity and endure it as Jesus endured it, I guess that's dying to yourself. And when you're content with any food and any clothes and any climate and any society and any interruption and any solitude, I suppose that's dying to self. And when you never care to refer to yourself in a conversation or to record and recite your own good works or to pursue commendation, when you can truly love to be unrecognized for something good, I suppose that's dying to self. And when you see someone else prosper and someone else reach goals that you desire and you can honestly rejoice with that other person in spirit and feel no envy and not question God while your needs are far greater and you are in desperate circumstances, I suppose that's dying to self. Because I suppose death to self, that's the real issue. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I'm grateful, Father, that he was willing to die to himself. In spite of the magnitude of his position, and the magnitude of his authority, Jesus surrendered for us. <laughs> for us. He was willing to lay down his life for us. And Father, there, there are more people than I can even imagine that are grateful for that sacrifice. I pray that we, was, we as his followers would stop finding that so difficult to do for other people. We'd stop fighting to live. We learn how to die for those around us, whether they're believers that are struggling or whether they're non-believers that have never met Jesus. I pray we'll become a church locally. I pray we'll become a church globally that communicates one thing, that we'll do whatever it takes. We'll become all things to all people so that we can win some. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.